This is Zealous, an in-depth look behind the scenes of legal matters straight from the attorneys of Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. Welcome to Zealous. I'm your host, Brianna Meyer, and this is the place to immerse yourself in the legal world. Today, I'm talking with Cameron Weitzner about the differences between public and private representation. Cameron is an associate here at Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown. Prior to joining the firm, Cameron spent many years advocating for clients and litigating cases at the Wisconsin State Public Defender's Office. Cameron has represented clients pre-charge all the way to jury trial and has achieved successful outcomes for many clients. His motion practice resulted in cases being dismissed or evidence being suppressed because of unconstitutional police or government conduct. Cam joined our office last year, and he is definitely one of my favorite people to be in a courtroom with, and he also has firsthand experience when it comes to both public and private representation. Generally speaking, public representation is provided to those who can't afford to hire an attorney on their own, and those public attorneys are paid by the state. The problem is, at least in Wisconsin, that public defenders and appointed attorneys are extremely overworked and vastly underpaid. Cam, you are one of our newest attorneys, and you came to us from the Public Defender's Office. Yes, I did. Ah. I was at the uh, Public Defender in Waukesha prior to coming here. Mm-hmm. Um, was lucky enough to join the team at Gimbel, Riley, Garen, and Brown, and uh, yeah, I had spent five years at the Waukesha PD's office. So, um, And that was straight out of law school, right? Yeah. So when I was in law school, I was part of what they call the Public Defender Clinic. And so I spent a year there essentially handling a full misdemeanor caseload while I was in law school. And based on that, I was hired at the PD. That's awesome. I, well, I mean, first of all, I don't know what exactly the economy was like when you graduated. We're pretty close in graduation years, but any job out of law school is an achievement. Yeah, it was really tough at that time. Um, So when I got hired, I was pretty lucky to have a job. There were a lot of people that I graduated with that sat around on their hands for a long time. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I felt really, really lucky to have that. And being a PD provided me an incredible amount of experience. Right. And there is obviously a very large difference in what it's like to work in the public defender's office versus what it is like to work in a private office. I know just from talking to you on a daily basis. Let's break it down what is the difference in the types of cases that you see so the types of cases i think is one of the things that i guess surprised me but probably shouldn't have surprised me in going from the pd to um, private practice here so the pd i mean you're handling all sorts of cases so you're handling anything from uh, misdemeanor retail theft all the way up to a homicide and then sort of everything in between. Concentration of cases, to be honest with you, is more uh, prop, maybe petty property crimes, a lot of that. So a lot of retail thefts, burglaries, um, and, and maybe less petty robberies, armed mm-hmm. robberies, things like that, right? So where money is sort of the object of the crime. And, and maybe that's not that surprising, right? So, uh, you know, when you're a public defender, all of your clients, um, they don't have any money. Right. And so um, a lot of times the uh, offenses charged uh, kind of reflected that fact. 
Um, also, we're dealing with a lot of drug crimes, right? Mm -hmm. um, drugs are one of the things that can also cause somebody to not have any money. Right. Um, coming here, uh, seen a lot of the other stuff, right? Um, OWIs, sex assaults, child sex assaults, child pornography cases. Um, now, obviously, there's everything else under the sun here, too, uh, but maybe not as much. The concentration is definitely different. Yeah. I would agree with that. What about your day-to-day, -day, you know, court time versus office time? I know that there's probably a huge difference. So it's crazy, right? So um, when I was at the public defender, I had upwards of 200 cases uh, pending all well, simultaneously, cases. right? And so cases, <laughs> you know, when you, when you have a case, they all kind of um, are in varying stages of flux, right? So sometimes you've got the new case and you have to deal with things kind of immediately and then that case will kind of go uh, quote-unquote dormant for a little while and you'll be waiting for your next court date and that one's okay and then, you know, another one comes up. But you're taking on new cases every single day and you're closing cases every single day. Mm -hmm. I knew that was going to be a big change, right? So here, uh, I spend a significant amount of time in the office reviewing files, yep. working on cases, uh, writing briefs, and way less time really in court. Uh, you know, on a daily basis at the public defender, I mean, there's a pretty good chance that I was in court from uh, 8.30 until 4.30. Yeah. And, you know, with a working hour lunch. And that was it. Um, doesn't give you a lot of time to um, work on any briefs, work on any motions, at least during the day. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that you're not working from 4.30 to, you know, whenever. Uh, but that's sort of how things were, were different. Um, time management became a real uh, challenge at the public defender. I, I can only imagine, I think, sometimes even here it feels like we are constantly go, 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 and to have double four times that going on, and I imagine too everyone in the office is like that, so everyone's always busy. Yeah, I mean, there's... Um, sometimes, I think, times where you feel like this is never, this isn't, I'm, I'm never doing enough, and there is only so much that one person can do. It's true. Uh, and, and that's sort of reflective on the, the failings of the government in supporting our public defense system. Right, yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit, but other... Another thing I want to highlight on is when you're a public defender, you're in one county. You know all the judges, you know all the DAs, you know all the bailiffs. But here, we go all over the state. What has that transition been like? Uh, it's different, right? So every, every time I make a court appearance here, um, there's a good chance that I'm walking into that courtroom for the very first time. And, and I know that uh, over time, expanding kind of my... My realm of influence, if you will, or re rather realm of appearances, if you will. I'll get to know these people and, and, and get more familiar. That's one of the big benefits, though, of having a public defender in a case uh, is that sort of jurisdictional and institutional knowledge, right? I mean, right. nobody is better at asking, like, how's this judge on this and how's this prosecutor on that? And, you know, what's the local court rule for A, B, or C, right? Because you just kind of know this stuff because you do it all the time, right? Eight hours yeah. a day, 
you're in front of these varying, you know, whatever it is, five, ten, maybe more, and you just know how things get done. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And one thing, too, that I think we are lucky enough here to benefit from is having enough attorneys where there's a general knowledge of the judges and the DAs in-house. Um, I think that a lot of smaller firms, one of the challenges is navigating different judges and obviously there's resources for it, but it's nice that I can just walk down the hall and ask someone, I know you've dealt with this judge, give me the lowdown. That's totally true. So, you know, we collectively, I think, have a great deal of knowledge within our office mm -hmm. and, and that's the support and the, uh, again, that collective knowledge really is a great asset. asset. Um, but I know, like, Brie, you and I, we've worked on cases together where uh, we've called up the PD in, in that particular county and said, hey, PD, like, what's the deal with this judge? Do yeah. I want this judge? Do I want a different one? Should I substitute on that judge? Should I leave it in front of them? What's this What's this DA like? Yeah. How, do I, how do I deal with that DA, right? And, and that happens. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, we, even without that, uh, I think offer a pretty good insight into the the uh, players in the judicial system. It's a good way to put it. I want to switch to talking about costs of defense because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the biggest differences probably for you is going from being a public defender where you're cognizant of the amount of work that goes in, the amount of time to going to a public defense where that time is quantified in dollars? It's a, a stark difference, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're, a, when you're a kind of a career public defender, if you will, right, you obviously know that the private bar attorneys that you're sitting next to in court are um, billing on some, some particular schedule, whether it's like a flat fee bill or whether it's a retainer. Uh, whether they're billing hourly, however it is, right? But you don't really get it, mm -hmm. right? Like, uh, there's there's really no way to, I think, understand it until you've done it. Um, and so I never realized, right, yeah. that a person's case getting called two hours late or an hour and a half late just costs that, that defendant sitting in the back an hour and a half of time. Um, I, I didn't know that. Um, I do now. Right. Uh, and I know that I'm more aware of how important it is then, right, to make sure that uh, you are using your time in the most efficient manner, um, not only because you want the best result for your client, um, but you also want to be uh, fiscally efficient, if you will. I totally agree. And so obviously there's this big gap then there's a group of people that qualify for public defenders because not everyone qualifies and then there's a group of people that can afford private defense attorneys and then there's a group of people that fall in the middle and I think a big question that a lot of attorneys legislatures are trying to figure out is how do we help those people yeah so I, I think it's good to like think about this sort of in actually four, there's like four groups of people, right? Or rather four groups of attorneys, okay? So a person is arrested on a, on a particular crime, right? Let's just say, 
for the sake of argument here that in the state of Wisconsin, they're arrested for possession of a narcotic drug. It's a class I felony, right? Carries with it a maximum term of incarceration of three years, six months, mm-hmm. $10,000 fine or both. Which are very hefty. Yeah. So that's, you know, uh, while it is the lowest level felony, it's still a very, very serious charge. Mm-hmm. Um, you absolutely have to have an attorney, right? There is 10,000%. Um, very little debate to be had as to whether you should represent yourself or not. Um, So while representing yourself is always a a choice and a constitutional right, it's very, it's it's not advisable at all. But in any event, so you get arrested and you're in jail and you're waiting for your first appearance. It's called your initial appearance. At that time, you're going to meet with, in, in all likelihood, a public defender. A public defender is going to come in and it's going to be probably the first, you know, uh, relatively friendly face um, that a defendant, a newly arrested and now charged defendant sees. Um, and at that time, the public defender or the public defender's representative is going to say, okay, um, how much do you make? And they're going to ask you a, a series of, I think, financial questions that will then go into some, some calculation. Um, and that's going to spit out a number and it's going to determine uh, whether you're eligible for a public defender or not. Mm-hmm. Just because you're eligible for a public defender doesn't mean you're going to get a public defender. Right? Yeah. So there's a group of attorneys that are employed by the PD and those are commonly referred to as staff attorneys. Um, they are paid by the state. Um, because the public defender, at least in the state of Wisconsin, is a state agency. Mm -hmm. Um, Coupled with that, though, are private bar attorneys that then work um, on what they call public defender appointments. They get paid on an hourly basis, and I know we'll get to that that soon, but um, those people then will then represent you, uh, and while they are private bar attorneys, they also... um, work then for the public defender where their bills are then paid by the state. The second, or I guess now we're talking the third group of attorneys, right, are these court-appointed attorneys. So you met with the public defender and they said, oh, well, you know, um, Mr. So-and-so charged, or Mrs. So-and-so charged with a possession of narcotic drugs. You're not eligible for a public defender. Well, um, maybe you can't afford to run out and hire a private attorney in the next three hours uh, because that's when your court date is. It's at 1.30 and right now it's 9.30. So, and a lot of um, people fall into this category. You don't have a lot of time. Um, at least in Waukesha, the public defender who met with you um, can appear with you at that first initial appearance just simply for the purpose of setting bail. Whether that's legal or not is another question, uh, but it certainly does assist in allowing the judicial system to run smoothly. Mm -hmm. They can argue bail on your behalf, try to get you out of jail, um, and there's obviously a whole other set of issues related to that. But um, once that happens, you can then request a um, court-appointed attorney. And that attorney is then appointed through the county and when the court makes that determination, they take into a lot more different financial factors that the public defender does. Uh, what your monthly rent is or what your monthly expenditures are. Uh, child support that's paid. While that's taken in by the PD, it's I think a greater factor um, with 
a whole host of things. Um, and in theory, the court or the county appointments are more inclusive. You do have to repay that on a different schedule and on a monthly basis, and then that rate will be set by the judge that appoints that, that, that attorney. There's a, there's a petition for a request of a county appointed attorney, and um, that attorney is always a private bar attorney and never a public defender staff attorney. Last, and, last but certainly not least, um, are the private bar attorneys, so like us, right? So, um, you know, we take appointments on, on an occasional basis, but mm -hmm. uh, also, um, and the vast majority of our clients are privately retained, and, and they are uh, able to pay us. Right, and I think a misconception is that maybe these people are footing the entire bill, and that's not always the case. Sometimes their families are really circling the wagon. I mean, it's not just the defendant's life that is on the table, but for a lot of people, it's their families as well, and, and they are willing to lend money in order to retain a private attorney. Oh man, there's like a you know, whole wide array of impact that a person's arrest, and, and just even a person being charged with any crime, right, can have on a family, can have on their friends, their employers, the, you know, and let alone the person themselves. So um, there's often, in, in these cases, I've certainly come to learn, right, that there's a lot of people willing to assist. And, and so if, if a person's in the position, I think, to uh, reach out to family and to friends um, and other loved ones to help them uh, retain an attorney, uh, they absolutely should. Um, I don't mean that to say that you're going to end up with uh, bad representation through the public defender or through a staff attorney at the PD. I don't think that that's true at all. I think there's a <clears throat> common misconception. Agreed. Um, I can't tell you like the number of times I was called a public pretender or asked by, you know, asked when I was going to become a real lawyer. Um, yeah. Or if uh, I was excited to work on this case because I could become a real attorney at the end of it. Never heard that one before. There's, a, there's certainly a general level of skepticism, I think, of public defenders, and that's, I think, unfairly portrayed by the media. Couldn't I know agree that more. Some of the you know brightest, uh, brightest lawyers I've ever met are public defenders, and a whole bunch of attorneys here uh, yep. are former public defenders. Yeah, I was going to uh, say Ray, Pat, Nicole, me. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a, a the new attorney, new attorney yeah. joining joining us, Jorge Fergoso. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, we all come from a PD background, and I think that that kind of speaks volumes to the talent that comes out of the PD's office. Couldn't agree more. I was going to touch on that and ask you to clear up that misconception because I hear it a lot too, not to the full extent, obviously, that you did, um, but reasons why people don't want public defenders just in court or in passing and I think it's important to note that public defenders are literally always in court doing this so there is plenty of talent in that pool. I want to talk a little bit more about kind of groups two and three of the attorneys that we were talking about so the ones that are contracted by the public defender and the ones that are court appointed. In Wisconsin 
they are paid notoriously horribly for their services. And that is something that the governor and the legislature are really the ones that do any work with it. But one thing is that just up until 2020, attorneys contracted through the public defenders made $40 an hour for their services, which is not enough to keep the lights on. It's it's really not. Um, and, you know, up until the change in the private bar rate, which I don't think was sufficient enough, um, no. because in 2020 they took it from $40 up to $70. So, mm-hmm. um, but up until then we were paying public defenders, public defender appointments, uh, the lowest hourly rate nationwide. And that rate hadn't actually been changed since I think it's either the late 70s yeah. uh, or early 80s. I, I believe think. it was the late 70s. So, the late, yeah. so since the late 70s, we're paying these attorneys um, that are, you know, breaking their ass mm-hmm. for their clients, 40 bucks an hour. And, you know, these a lot of these people are solo practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they work in the northern reaches of Wisconsin or um, in more rural areas where there's really not that many attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are, you know, getting paid pennies. And when you look at it, right, they have to employ probably a secretary. They have to maintain their insurance, their building, mm-hmm. their equipment, their printing, their computers, their billing, their accounting, their everything. And they're working for 40 bucks an hour. And it really right. doesn't shake out. It simply can't. Um, it's it's it, it can't. impossible. So the increase to 70 marginal, but better, Um, and I think, you know, it was previously an issue where um, even the public defender's office, who was paying the 40 an hour, Mm -hmm. and certainly, I think, um, saving... Getting a lot of bang for their bucks. (laughs) Saving the state, like a bunch Mm -hmm. bunch of money, right, by only paying 40 bucks, was calling this a constitutional crisis. Um, And that's because people were sitting in jail um, or sitting around and not able to even be given an attorney um, for months and months and months. Which um, is scary. It's super scary, right? And you know, the Sixth Amendment guarantees you the right to counsel. And if you can't afford a counsel, um, then an attorney will be appointed for you. Mm-hmm. Um, not being able to appoint an attorney is really bad. Yeah. Um, and really jeopardizes people. And and defendants don't know what to do, they don't know right things to do, and they're really put in a precarious situation, and it's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say a lot of defendants, off the bat, probably don't even know their right to counsel. Uh, so they don't know what to ask for. Yeah, um, I think that a lot of people, when they're arrested by police, don't invoke their right to counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, um, it's really a joy when I get a case where a client says, no, officer, uh, I don't want to make any statements, and yes, I do want an attorney. Yeah. Um, that, really, that really helps us out. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, all this talk about public defender appointments, it's like mm-hmm. there's a big message here, like it's to not, not talk to the cops. Yes. That's a, I think that's a common theme that comes out in any conversation about my job that I have is to always, always ask for an attorney. One thing that Brown County just came out with, I think last week or the week before, is 
they made a statement saying that they're pushing to have this uh, contracted attorney fee raised to $100 an hour. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Brown County serves a pretty big area, yet it's not somewhere that too many attorneys tend to move to. I think attorneys in Wisconsin flock to Madison and Milwaukee, the bigger cities. Um, and I think that the PD's office up there is having the ex running into the, to the exact problem that you said where they just don't have enough attorneys to staff the cases. Yeah, I think that that move towards $100 actually kind of surprises me out of Brown County, a more conservative yeah. county in Wisconsin, but that does certainly recognize, right, that there just aren't enough public defender staff attorneys, right, and then there's just not enough attorneys willing to take these public defender cases right. for pennies on the dollar. Right, if it's not going to keep your lights on, if you're not going to be able to pay your secretary, there's really not a lot of incentive to take it. No, um, and there's you know not a lot of incentive when you're passing up potential other clients um, who are able to hire mm -hmm. you that are in that position, um, and you know not to sound you know overtly greedy, mm -hmm. um, but are you know in in less of a position to pay you or not pay you at all, right? Yeah. And um, that's you know, that's not ideal. And it's um, the unfortunate reality of business, obviously. I, uh, I don't want to say obviously. I would hope that most people that are defense attorneys do it for altruistic reasons as well, because they feel a sense of purpose doing it. But when it comes down to it, a business is a business, and you have to be able to run your business, and that requires a certain amount of cash flow. Yeah, it's a, there's, you know, on occasion, the, the competition between those two, I think, purposes, right, um, in private practice, um, but we shouldn't be putting these attorneys that are taking these appointments um, in the same position um, because, you know, the public, the public defender is there, right, to um, provide counsel to people that can't afford it. Time for the definition of the day. Today for the definition we are going to build on what Jason Luzak talked about which was the initial appearance and now we're going to talk about the preliminary hearing. The preliminary hearing is um, really well it only applies in felony cases right so in, in Wisconsin when a person is charged with a felony they have the statutory right to a preliminary hearing. Uh, that preliminary hearing has to be held within a particular time period based on what the bond has been set at. So it's either 10 or 20 days, uh, unless that time limit is then waived, which maybe it is because maybe you're not in jail. Right. Um, so if you're in jail, the, the common practice would be to waive the time limits on, the, on hearing that preliminary hearing. At the preliminary hearing, it then becomes the state's burden to put on enough evidence to show that a felony, any felony under the sun, is committed and that the defendant named in the criminal complaint committed it. Um, evidence uh, usually always takes the form of cop testimony. Right. Um, preliminary hearings today um, are bullshit. Um, preliminary hearings today often consist solely 
of a police officer getting on the stand and basically reciting all of the facts that are contained within the criminal complaint because a number of years ago the legislature changed the rules surrounding preliminary hearings where now um, any witness for the state is allowed to testify to hearsay so what somebody else said mm -hmm. outside of court and they're able to offer that for the truth of the matter asserted or basically to prove up um, to that level of probable cause what's necessary to get the state past the preliminary hearing. And that change happened before both of us started practicing it. Yeah, I, so I've only heard the, you know, of the glory days. Exactly. Right? But, you know, since I became an attorney, it's always been this, uh, this, this standard where... Almost uh, a farce of a hearing, <laughs> if we're being honest. Hearsay is allowed. That doesn't, I don't say that to mean that uh, all preliminary hearings are bullshit because right. I think that there's plenty of times where prelims are super valuable and we've won them, right? We've mm -hmm. all won them uh, from time to time. They're significantly less winnable when it's simply mm -hmm. a cop, you know, reciting these facts that the state's alleged. But um, from time to time, um, you can surprisingly win these things and it's great. Um, because the preliminary hearing is a check on the state, right, to make sure they're not just willy-nilly filing these cases, particularly fel felony cases, right? I think in, it's in, important to note that someone can waive their right to a preliminary hearing, yeah. so you don't have to have it. Right, and so there's, uh, you know, a process where a person can knowingly and voluntarily waive their right to a preliminary hearing. And to be totally honest with you, Bree, um, most of the time preliminary hearings are waived. Mm -hmm. um, I would say upwards of 90% of preliminary hearings get, waves, get waived. And, and there's a whole host of reasons why. Um, maybe you don't care what the cop has to say about anything. Maybe the cop's testimony doesn't make or break this case. Mm -hmm. um, take for instance a case of domestic abuse, right? right? Um, where it was a defendant and their spouse. Well, nobody knows what happened except for the defendant and their spouse mm -hmm. um, that were present during this alleged offense. And the spouse isn't going to take the stand. What's the cop going to say? The cop's going to come to court and he's going to say, well, she told me, mm -hmm. or maybe not, maybe not even that, she told another cop yeah. X, Y, and Z, uh, or he told the cop X, Y, and Z. It, it doesn't make sense in that particular case. Um, to have a preliminary hearing because you just don't care, mm -hmm. right? Um, it doesn't make you, by waiving a preliminary hearing, it's not admitting anything, right? It's just giving up your right to a preliminary hearing, which again, we've already touched on, uh, is bullshit uh, under most circumstances. But one of the benefits to having a preliminary hearing is to begin to elicit testimony from an officer. Um, and oftentimes when we go into a preliminary hearing, we go in with the idea that we're probably not gonna win this thing. Right. Um, we're gonna try, but the bigger goal is to have that cop get on the stand, raise his right hand, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and then get, get to talking um, mm -hmm. and ask the questions that we want that cop to answer so that we can order the transcript and potentially use that transcript down the road. Um, it's the unofficial reason to have a preliminary hearing. Totally agree with that. 
Well, thank you, Cam, so much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me about public versus private representation. I think there's a lot of information that the public doesn't really know about the inner workings of different types of defenses. And, you know, if anyone is going to be able to shed light on them, it's you. Thanks for having me, Bree. Let's get to know GRGB paralegal Rachel Sweet. Rachel joined Gimble Riley, Yaron, and Brown after working as a paralegal for the State of Wisconsin Department of Justice in their criminal litigation unit. Rachel is passionate about public service. She is the founding president of the UW-Madison chapter of Leading Women of Tomorrow, which empowers women to pursue careers in public service. Rachel is also a part of the advocacy committee of NAMI, an organization which helps improve the lives of people affected by mental health conditions. Additionally, she has volunteered with Eleven Legal Clinic, which provides legal services to underserved communities in the Fox Valley. As you'll hear, she now spends her time mentoring multiple students that are interested in the legal field. We are here with Rachel, our lovely paralegal who has slipped right into the criminal and healthcare world with us. Hi there. I want to talk a little bit, Rachel, about some stuff you do outside of working here at GRGB. Okay. And I know one thing that you're really passionate about is a mentoring program that you're a part of. Yeah, so starting after graduation, I uh, joined the legal studies department at UW-Madison where I graduated from mentoring uh, students who were only a year or two younger than me, which uh, was kind of weird at first. I'm like, do I even have authority to mentor these people? But it ended up being really cool because we were so close in age. I kind of was just going through the things that they were going through. I went through the law school application process. I looked, you know, for jobs. I kind of understood all the things that needed to be done. Um, so we had different programs we would do. We would do uh, like a, we called it speed mentoring, kind of like oh, speed dating. Yeah. Um, but you basically would sit at a table and you would talk to like 10 different students in an hour and just mm -hmm. kind of give a little spiel and answer any questions they have. And yeah, it was really fun. That's awesome. And are you still involved in it? Yeah, so obviously it's a little different with COVID. You can't do the speed mentoring face-to-face -face with everyone, but um, I've been connected with a couple students and just have been like Zoom conferencing with them and um, helping them with their resumes and cover letters and just giving them advice and trying to encourage them through the process. That's great. So mm -hmm. I, I think the benefits to the mentees are pretty clear. Yeah. They get advice from you and... I mean, let's be real, you're pretty cool, so they get lessons <laughs> Thank on you. that too, and they get to have someone who's been through the process lead them through it. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed any benefits for yourself, any altruistic benefits, mm -hmm. or any benefits that you've been able to apply in real life? Uh, definitely. I think just staying connected with my alma mater in general is really beneficial. It's kind of cool to see people going through a process I just recently went through, um, I think it helps me be kinder to my past self and present self, kind of seeing, you know, all the anxieties that people have, especially in this day and age, and just connecting with people around my own age um, and in, interested in the same field is always really rewarding. That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks, Rachel, for taking time to sit down and sharing that about yourself. And I mean, I'm sure I'll be in your office in a couple minutes talking about the case. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for having me.
Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of Zealous. This series is brought to you by Gimbel, Riley, Garrett, and Brown, located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. If you think you need a lawyer, contact us at grgblaw.com. Tune in for our next episode, where we talk communications during a divorce with partner Max Stevenson. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode of Zealous.